Anyway, uh, that's where they are. So the boy and I've been rolling solo. It's been a dude's weekend. So we've had some pizza and a lot of movies. So that's what we've done. But anyway, we are, um, we are right kind of on the close of this summer study through the book of Luke. And the, the challenge the whole summer was, and you know, we've kind of done this well. Some of us haven't engaged quite as much. But the idea at the first was, what if we all got in the word together? What if we looked at the same passages, read through the same parts of Scripture, decided that we wanted to say, God, we want to kind of surround ourselves together as a church in your word. And then on Sundays, I'd sort of explore some of these big themes. And the idea was not that we would walk through the book of Luke from start to finish, right, verse by verse. Like I, I typically preach through long kind of texts like that. I just like teaching that way. But that was really not the goal of this series. It was really more to pick out these highlights as we were challenging ourselves to spend time with Jesus, prayer and in the word. And, and so we've kind of walked through the highlights of the book of Luke all summer, and we've used anchor points or words or focus points, and we've talked about things like gospel and obedience and worship and love and humility and calling. We've really looked at these passages with a, a place in mind that we could sort of sink our feet into. And this morning, we're doing the same thing. We're actually using the word grace. So last week, we explored the idea of love and talk about sacrificial love and the picture of the foot washing um, that Jesus engaged in with the disciples. We used uh, Luke chapter 22 to kind of propel us into John 13, and we talked about a love that was sort of unconditional in its nature and foot washing and how we as a church are called to love each other in that way, and, and we sort of explored that. Well, this morning we're picking up right on the heels of that same evening, that sort of infamous evening where Jesus introduces the disciples to this beautiful movement that we call the Lord's Supper that would be not only an anchor point for the disciples to remember what they've done with Jesus, but would be the crowning point of unity for the entire church for millennia to come. It would be what unites us, the remembering of Jesus' death and resurrection that we celebrate once a month, unites us with believers across space and time. This evening that Jesus would take off his outer garments and scrub the disciples' feet, this evening where all the disciples, except for maybe one, would flee from him, run, where Peter himself, as we're going to see, will ultimately deny Jesus. Jesus will be beaten, put on a sham of trial, and led away to the cross. All unfolds in a matter of 12 or so hours. And we're going to pick up right in the middle of that evening. The Passover meal had happened, the foot washing had happened. Jesus had led them out into the garden and they were waiting and he encouraged the disciples to pray with them. And then Judas the betrayer comes leading this group of religious leaders, temple guards, angry people that wanted to sort of end this disturbance that Jesus was once and for all. And they arrest Jesus and seize him. And we're going to pick up as they lead him back into the courtyard with Peter's famous denial, his most public and private failure, the denial that he has of his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And what we seem to know Peter most for is that moment of failure. And what the story is going to, I think, open to us is ideas and truths about the nature of sin, the beauty of grace, and the necessity of repentance. So if you've got that Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 22. We're also going to be back and forth between Matthew 26 if you want to get there. So Luke 22 towards the end, Matthew 26 somewhere in there. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, I just thank you that your word is timeless. That God, it knows no boundaries of space or time. That your word is living and active and that we can open it um, this morning and be united with truth, with who you are. And Lord, we don't take that lightly. We, this, this word of yours, God, is not something that we use to sprinkle throughout our lives to try and add substance. Lord, it is the very foundation by which we exist. And so, God, I pray that as we open it this morning, we would encounter you. Um, take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning. 
whisper that in whatever way you need to. Just ask that God would move in you, that he would teach you. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you or around you, in front of you, behind you, wherever. Just pray that God would um, move in them. Be in the habit of praying for someone else, even if you don't know their name. Be about God moving in their hearts this morning. Lord, make your word come alive to us. We know that we can't discover truth. We know that you reveal truth to us. So we ask your Holy Spirit to come and reveal truth to us this morning. So Lord, teach our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to tell you in advance, I've probably bit off a little bit more than I'm I'm ready to kind of tackle this morning. We're going to try and get through it because I think what we're going to see here is really powerful. I actually try, I thought about dividing this stuff up into a couple of weeks, but we don't have weeks because next week's Labor Day or Memorial or Labor or whatever. And then the week after that, I've got this big new series that we're launching into. So um, we, uh, we don't have the time. So we're going to get through it all today. But this is the, the, the picture in Luke chapter 22 of Peter's denial or disowning or whatever word you want to use there, defection, failure of uh, Jesus. Just as Jesus had predicted, right? Remember from last week, sitting at the table reclining, Jesus looks at Peter and basically says, everyone's going to fall away. And and Peter makes this bold proclamation and says, "Uh uh-uh, not everybody, not this guy. I I am with you even to the death. Like, even if all fall away on account of you, I will not. Matthew records him as sort of standing up and saying, even if everybody disowns you, I never will. I will die with you, right? Well, this is sort of the moment where Jesus kind of promise to to Peter comes true. Verse 54, chapter 22. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated at the firelight and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it and said, woman, I I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you were also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, uh, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Now, I mentioned that there's three real truths that I want you to see here as we talk about the nature of sin and the beauty of grace and repentance. But before we kind of dive into those, I, I want to say a word about Peter because, I mean, we're about to explore sort of Peter's greatest public and private failure. And I think that there is a word that at least we should give him. We should spend a little bit of time talking about him because I think he at least deserves it because Peter deeply loved Jesus. All right, Peter had a passion for following Christ. So although we're going to explore Peter's failure, we know that Peter had a deep love for Jesus. And we even see that played out in two really powerful ways just hours before this sort of public denial takes place. Right? We see it played out at that moment at the table that I just mentioned. So Jesus is gathered at the table. He had just finished washing the disciples' feet. Judas had left basically to betray him. And Jesus looks at all the disciples, and very plainly, he's telling them about some things that are going to unfold. And he said, I'm telling you this tonight, every one of you will fall away. And Peter sort of in this this public, bold statement says, no, 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 not everybody. I'm not going to fall away. And Jesus looks at him and says, yes, Peter, you, in fact, 
before the rooster crows, meaning basically before daybreak, but before the rooster crows, and it's late in the evening, you will have disowned me or denied me three times. And Peter has this sort of vehement response. And Matthew records it where he says, even if all fall away away from you, I will not. In fact, I'm willing to go to prison and to death. So Peter makes this bold proclamation like, look, I don't care if everybody else goes. Like, I love you. And I will follow you to prison. I will even follow you to death. And in that moment, even now, most of us wouldn't argue with that at all. Like, we deeply believe that Peter's that guy. If any of the disciples were that, it's Peter. He was deeply in love with Jesus. There's no part of me that reads these texts and thinks Peter was sort of making that up. Hey, I just wanted Jesus to think I am, but really I'm going to bolt. Like, I believe he was deeply in love with Jesus and thought, I'll die with this person. Peter's the one that made the proclamation some weeks earlier when Jesus says, hey, who do the people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the living Son of God. Knowing full well that by Peter proclaiming that Jesus was God's Son was basically signing his own death certificate. Because in those days, that was blasphemy. And blasphemy is punishable by death. So we see Peter's proclamation of Jesus himself. We also see Peter's love sort of poured out in the moments that led up to this arrest. So Matthew kind of records it this way, right? So Peter had been, had been led into the garden with James and John and Jesus, and he'd asked them to pray. When that was over, he had them stand up, and as they were walking out, Judas comes leading this crowd, all right? So here's what happens in Matthew 26, 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, who was Judas, had arranged a signal with him. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once, Jesus said to Judas, greetings, Rabbi. Or Judas said to Jesus, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Listen to this. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword, drew it, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Both, or all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record that same event. Right? They record one of the companions of Jesus reaching for his sword, striking the servant of the high priest, right? cutting off his ear. John, book of John, tells us that that companion was Peter. That Peter's the one that drew his sword, reaching and slicing, I guess, at the head of the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John also records that Jesus basically stops Peter and heals him, heals the servant of the high priest right there in front of everybody. So you get this sort of moment of brave courage, like, I am willing to go to the death. I will prove it. These guys are here with clubs and swords, led by the religious leaders and the temple guards and even a Roman garrison. And they are here to arrest my Lord, my Savior, my teacher. I'll draw my sword. I fire that thing at somebody's head. Right? We even see it as the event unfolds. The crowd takes Jesus directly into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, we don't know how it happens, but all the other disciples scatter except for Peter. And Luke tells us that Peter followed at a distance. And we don't know how, but somehow Peter wiggled his way or snuck his way into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, we're not talking about huge acres of land. We're talking about the walled city of Jerusalem. So somehow Peter was able to sort of finagle his way in with that angry mob, that crowd, those onlookers, those people, into the very courtyard, the walled courtyard of the very man that could have him killed, the high priest. He gets in there, and he gathers, and he sits at the fire with a bunch of other people, servants and some other people that were there, some few dozen yards away from the arrested Christ. I say that because 
it brings several questions to mind for me. How does a man like Peter, who loves Jesus so deeply, so desperately, so passionately, who makes a declaration to Jesus' face himself, I will die with you, who when arrested draws a sword to try and kill the very person or persons that are coming to take Jesus, very bravely sneaks his way all the way into town from outside, following the crowd, outside of town, the Mount of Olives, all the way in through the city gates, into the courtyard of the very man that could have him killed. How does that man, that proclamation, go from that moment to the very famous denial, I don't even know who this guy is? How does that happen? As I told you earlier, I think there's a picture of the nature of sin and and grace and repentance that really play powerfully into this story. And and I want to explore it with that question in in our minds. How does a guy like Peter, who's passionate lover of Christ, I mean, no doubt he is willing to die for Jesus. How in a moment does he go from that to this very famous denial, betray, whatever you want to call it? Well, the first thing that we see is that I think the nature of sin plays a huge role in this story. Now, we're not talking necessarily about, uh, you know, we're really talking about a specific thing when we talk about this sin, this denial. How does the nature of sin play a role in this story? Because Peter was no, undoubtedly brave. I mean, just the events, right? I'm going to stand up for Jesus. I'm going to pull out a sword. I'm going to nearly get killed myself. I'm going to sneak into the high priest's. How does this moment of bravery lead us there? Well, while Peter was brave and courageous and really amazingly powerful in a few of these moments, I think that Peter was extremely fearful. Now, we don't see it played out in the story. We never see it named. But I'm going to lead you down a path that I think will show us that Peter allowed fear to lead to sin, which led to continued sin in his life. That fear led him down a path that ultimately led to his own lying upon himself and his own destruction. Now, I'm not blaming Peter for being fearful. I mean, I would probably be the exact same way in that moment, right? I mean, we're not talking about something small. You're standing in the courtyard of the man that would have you killed, and they all knew that if they associated themselves with Jesus, they would be arrested and most likely killed. It's why 10 of the remaining 11, because Judas had already left, bolted for the hills. It's why they scattered, because they knew to be arrested by this mob was certainly death. So I'm not talking about something small. It's like I'm like, oh, Peter, how weak are you? I mean, the reality is is that most of us in that same situation would have run. We like to think we wouldn't, but fear seizes hold of our hearts. And so I'm not blaming him, but I'm telling you that fear plays an extremely relevant role in the story and even in our own sort of sinful nature. Now, Peter has three denials. And the first one of these denials, I think, is probably the most understandable. So he's at this fire. He's gathered with a bunch of people. Jesus is a couple of dozen yards away. I'm not really sure how it all played out and where they all were standing. But Jesus is there, and Peter's kind of gathered in the shadows, and they start a fire, and the Middle Eastern nights are cold, and Peter's around that fire, and a servant girl, it says, recognizes him, right? So she recognizes him, and she actually says, this man was with him. Now, maybe she'd seen him walking around town or Maybe she had recognized him from ministry earlier. It was a lot of people in the city. But she knew him. She said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This man was with him. But it said Peter denied it and said, woman, I don't know him. Now, this is the easiest one of the denials for me to really wrap my head around because we've all been here. Peter's unprepared, right? He's in this fearful situation where he's worried about what's going to happen. And if he's found out, exposed, what does that lead to? 
And he's caught off guard by the accusation of the question. We've all been there. We've been there in a moment where, you know, we thought we were prepared for something, but someone asks us a question or accuses us of something, and the first thing that we do is, is kind of seized with fear, just whatever comes out of our mouth, or we, we get caught in a lie or whatever. I mean, it happens to me. It happens to everybody. And I can remember a very specific time, and I was telling Kale and Katie this story a couple of, of weekends ago, and I remember a time when Meredith and I were out on an anniversary date, and Sandra Bullock, who you all will know as Sandra Bullock, hit on me, like literally hit on me, and uh, I don't blame her, I mean, let's be honest, right, I'm holding anything against her for that, but it happened, we were on an anniversary dinner, we were at her restaurant, she has a restaurant in Austin named Bess, and it just opened up, and we were going there, and, and she came in with the guy she was dating a while back, she was dating Jesse James, the motorcycle builder or whatever, and, uh, and, we, and she came in with him, and we were like, oh, look, it's Sandy, because, you know, we, in Austin, everybody knows her, uh, you know, in theory, and so she walks in, and we were kind of like, oh, that's really cool, that's Sandra Bullock, right? And, uh, and this guy, all the tattoo guys, who I sized up pretty quickly and realized I probably got him, no problem. And uh, so she goes in, and she's walking around. She turns a corner, and we're all, everyone's kind of just talking, and then she's over there. And Marathon are sitting at this little table celebrating her anniversary. And uh, she's like, you should, you should go talk to her. I'm like, I'm not going to talk to her. Are you crazy? I mean, you know, I, I don't, you know, whatever. So kind of things go on, meal goes on, and we do, and I have to get up to go to the restroom, and, and I, so I get up and I go to the restroom, and I walk around the corner, and as I'm coming around the corner, we literally bump into each other, Sand, Sandy and I, right? So, can I call her Sandy? We dated, sort of. So we bumped into each other, right? Like, boom, and, you know, I'm startled, and she reaches out, and I lie to you not, she puts her hand on my shoulder, right? Which... I mean, that's, this is a good spot here. And, you know, I've been doing some of these and stuff like that. So she puts her hand on my shoulder. And we are now right here. I mean, and we are here. And she looks at me and she says, the restaurant just opened. Keep that in mind. She says, thank you for coming. Right? I guess, you know, maybe there's a broader statement about supporting a restaurant. Or maybe she was just glad I was there. I can't remember. But we were here. She said, thank you for coming. I looked her in the eye and I said, restroom. And I walked right past her. And I got in the restroom and I went, don't, God, are you kidding me? That's what my best line was? Restroom? Really? We could have been hanging out with Sandy and James all night. And here I am declaring my need to urinate or whatever. So, of course, I stall in there until she leaves because I just got no game at all. And, uh, anyway, so she goes and I come out and I sit down and Meredith's like, how, how did that? I was like, it was unbelievable. She hit on me. It was crazy. Um, but... I got you, babe, and we are here together. And so she said, we'll rarely have it, and I told her, and she's like, you're such an idiot. And so we could have been hanging out. But so we've all had those moments, right, where we're here, we're unprepared, and then all of a sudden it just sort of happens. It's why this one for Peter, to me, makes sense the most, right? Because here he is gathered fearful, and this woman looks at him and says, or this servant girl looks at him and says, you were with him. He says, no, 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 uh, what do me? I, I don't even know the guy, right? But it doesn't stop there. That one moment of fear, like seizing fear, right? Now that I've got this out and I'm engaged in it, leads to another, which leads to another, which leads down this road of denial. And here's the reality is that this is how Satan often works in our life, right? He waits around and prowls around for us to engage or fail or fall or sin or whatever. And he uses that as a seed or a foothold to get into our lives and push us further down this road. The reality is, is that this is what happens with Peter. He's in a very real fearful situation. He engages now in one moment of this untruth with people that have just heard him say it. And now when other people begin to accuse him of it, what's he left to do? 
Say, oh, I was mistaken the first time I actually really did know Jesus. No, he's left in a place where he has to perpetually move down that trail of sin and of denial. Satan does this with us. He works his way into our life and finds those footholds. And he does it because they're always there. Here's what I want you to see about the nature of sin. All right, And this is what I think is, is really important. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew how Satan knows how the enemy and knows how the nature of sin works in all of us. Just hours before this transpired, Jesus took Peter and James and John into the garden. And with all the disciples, he asked them to pray. You may remember how that went, right? This is kind of how it, how it says that Matthew records it. He says, then Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. And he took him with him, and he was sorrowful and he troubled. And he said, my soul, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, right? Jesus is about to be arrested, betrayed, crucified. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he has that famous prayer where he prays to God. He says, my God, if it's possible, will you take this cup from me? Right? Remember that where Jesus is crying out to God. Yet not as I will, but you will be done. He comes back, and he finds these guys sleeping could you not keep watch for me for one hour and then it says this he says and then he asked peter directly he asks peter directly watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing but the body is weak jesus knew you know what he was asking peter to do he's going peter tonight right you have got to be prepared spiritually because the nature of sin and the enemy is going to attack you pray because your spirit may be willing, but the body is weak. He's asking Peter to prepare spiritually to be ready to fight. Not physically fight, but spiritually fight against sin. And we know this. I don't know if Peter prayed on his way down to the courtyard that night. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But what we do know is that Peter did not do what Jesus had commanded him to do. He had fallen asleep. And Jesus knew that this time was coming and knew that Peter was going to have to be prepared, prepared spiritually and be girded in prayer. But Peter was at a place where he was relying on his own love for Christ to be what strengthened him. And I would venture to say this. Peter probably loved Jesus more than anybody else in this room, if that's quantifiable. He had spent every moment with him. He had walked away from everything. He had heard every word that fell from his lips. And yet Peter's love for Christ was not enough to keep him out of that sin. Relying on your own ability and your own love for Jesus and your own passion as a Christ follower will never be enough to keep you from sin. What Jesus is saying is that we have got to be prepared spiritually through prayer, relying on the strength of the Holy Spirit, realizing that we can't do this. When we walk into situations, life or whatever, relying on ourselves, on my ability to stand tall, my ability to be tough, to fight through it, to not succumb to whatever these things are, we will fail. The enemy knows it because he'll just wear us down. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, I want to be presumptuous, maybe you're sitting this morning and you're dealing with something massive. Maybe you're thinking about leaving your family. Maybe you're thinking about changing careers. Maybe you're thinking about engaging in, in something that you know is a lie, whatever it is. Maybe it's huge. But it doesn't matter because those small things, like in Peter's case, often lead to the sort of perpetual movement that leads us down a path of sin and destruction. It doesn't always start off as, I'm going to engage in this horrible, horrific thing. A lot of times it just starts off as saying, I don't know him. 
when we're not prepared spiritually, when we're not spending time with the Lord, when we're not in the word, when we're not praying, our hearts are incapable of standing strong just because we say we love Jesus. Strength literally comes from knowing Christ, from relying on the Holy Spirit. The nature of sin is that the enemy wants to put a foothold in your life and lead you down a path of perpetual destruction. And it usually begins with fear. I'm afraid of being found out, exposed. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of what this means and what that means, financially this, whatever that fear is, it usually leads there, which leads us. And, and Satan puts his hands in there and he says, what are you going to do if this doesn't work out? How's this going to, no one's going to know. Just do this, whatever it is. And then once he gets those footholds in our life, it's just down that path. That's the nature of sin and Jesus knew it and he commanded Peter. And I'll never read that passage the same again. Because when Peter, when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Listen, pray, because the spirit is willing and the body is weak. It isn't some kind of ethereal thought for all Christians to always hold on to. He's basically what Peter's saying, in just a few moments, you're going to need every ounce of spiritual strength you have. Pray that God will give it to you. And Peter falls asleep. Literally falls asleep. So we've got this picture of the nature of sin. The second thing that we really see in here, the truth I want you to see, and I'll kind of move through these next ones quickly, is this, this beauty of grace. So something really incredible transpires at the end of this passage. It comes in verse 62 or so. Peter replied, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. That's his last denial. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, right? And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Now, I don't know how this scene played out. I don't think any of us do. I don't know what the courtyard looked like, the shape was, where Jesus was standing, if he was up in a window, of, you know, arrested, or if he was standing 10 feet away, or if he was being marched by with the guards as he was headed to see Herod or Pilate. I don't have any idea. But what I do know is this. At that very moment where Peter makes his last denial, the one that Jesus had told him was going to happen, and that rooster crows at that moment, with all the things that Jesus had going on, all the thoughts that he had running through his mind, all those sort of kind of being overwhelmed with what was about to transpire in his own life, it says that he stopped and he turned and he looked right at Peter. It wasn't a fleeting glance. It wasn't like an I told you so. It was a turn and in a moment locked eyes with Peter in that very moment. There's a scholar and a pastor, his name is Duncan Ligon, and he says this. He says that the difference between Judas and Peter is wrapped up in that glance. And what he means by that is this. Peter didn't do anything. He denied Jesus. But Jesus in that moment turns and glances at, at Peter, locks eyes with Peter, and that glance is filled with grace because it leads Peter back to the word that Jesus had spoken. The difference between you and me and people that are out there not repenting of any of their sin is not about you or me, but it's about because God demonstrates his grace to us. It has nothing to do with the fact that, oh, I figured out my sin, I need to say I'm sorry. It's that God in the middle of our sin reveals to us what we've engaged in and gives us the opportunity of repentance. The difference between Peter and Judas is hung in that glance of grace. The reality is, is that grace is about what we can't do for ourselves. In the middle of our deepest, darkest failure, God steps into the middle of that moment and gives us what we can't give ourselves. Every single one of us is whatever situation, whatever perfect situation away from doing the very thing you think you are not capable of. 
sinful. Whatever crime, whatever activity, whatever adultery, stealing, whatever it is, murder, you give yourself the right circumstances and you are capable of it because our sin nature is running through us. Just think about it for a moment. The right situation. Peter thought he wasn't capable of even denying Jesus. I wouldn't think Peter was capable on the outside. I bet all the disciples are sitting around going, no, listen, if anybody's not, it's not going to be Peter. Peter was the perfect situation away from doing what he thought he was incapable of. I know that I'm the perfect situation from engaging in whatever I think I can't do. I'm one situation away from murder. I promise. You put me in the right circumstances, harm to family, children, wife, whatever, I'm one situation away from doing what I think I could never do. Why? Because sin runs through me. And if you do not believe this, you are in deep danger. We are all whatever that moment away is. The nature of grace is the glance that leads us back to God's truth, back to God's word. It's that interruption that leads us away from self-destruction and back to who God says we truly are, broken and sinful in need of a Savior. It's why Peter runs outside and weeps bitterly. See, that glance in that moment is grace. It's not a long, drawn-out conversation in which Jesus explains to Peter how his nature of sinfulness plays out with God's perfect grace and the cross to come and all that. It was just a moment that led Peter back to God's word, the very word that Jesus had spoken. The nature of sin is that we will choose our safety at all times. The nature of grace is that God interrupts our biggest struggle and he leads us back to his word. Now, I want you to understand something about repentance, all right? Repentance is a really important word and it's, it's necessary. We've got this beauty of grace that leads us to the necessity of repentance. And I want you to see where it's rooted. This whole movement is rooted in God's initiation. It's rooted in God taking the initiative. Right? So at the end of that encounter, when, when Peter is hearing that rooster crowing, and he locks eyes with Jesus, he remembered the word. Right? Before the rooster crows, you'll just only three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Repentance begins with God revealing to us who we really are, what we've engaged in, and what we've done. It's almost as if God holds up his word to us like a mirror, and for the first time we're able to see the reflection of what we've done and what we've engaged in. See, Peter, he repeated his sin, but he didn't know his sin. And when he was reminded by Jesus of his very words, He was able to see for the first time his sinfulness, and it broke his heart. God's word, the very word of God, is like a mirror. Corinthians talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's like a mirror in which we see ourselves perfectly. And when we see ourselves for who we really are, it should break our hearts. Repentance begins with God revealing who we really are. It didn't didn't begin by Peter feeling really bad. I shouldn't have done that. Lord, I'm sorry. It begins with revelation, that God says, look, look what I told you, and it breaks Peter's heart. Gospel repentance, so hang on to this, gospel repentance always leads to life change or change behavior. The difference between just feeling sorry that you were caught, or the difference between just being sorry that you did this, and actually repenting is changed behavior. It's God revealing that to us and then having that exposed and then living in changed behavior. That 
kind of place where Peter is deeply exposed is not a bad place to be. It's painful, but it's not bad. Because God is using it to lead us back to him, back to who he is. And although painful, is beautiful because it leads to changed behavior. Now, we don't expressly see that here, but we know the rest of the story, right? Peter goes outside, weeps bitterly, doesn't deny Jesus anymore. In fact, we don't see Peter for quite some time. But we know that Peter's life is restored. We have that interaction with Jesus and Peter on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Remember that whole thing? And then Peter gets reinstated, and he leads this movement called the church. Judas hangs himself. The difference? Grace. That glance of grace that leads us to the word, which leads us to changed behavior. Where are you this morning? Are you continually struggling with the exact same thing over and over and over and over again? Confessing all the time, God, I'm so sorry, God, I'm so sorry, God, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't say this, shouldn't think that, shouldn't do this. And you wonder why nothing changes because repentance isn't a part of your life. Just confession. Just saying I'm sorry. Gospel repentance leads to changed behavior and changed life. Nature of sin is that Satan wants to lead you down a path of self-destruction. The beauty of grace is that God steps in and what you can't do and reminds you of his promise and of his word, which should lead us to the necessity of repentance, saying, I will change my life because for the first time I'm exposed to the reality of my sin. Those things work in conjunction. You can't understand grace and repentance without understanding sin. Get a handle on the fact that your sin is real, and it is killing you, and it is killing the people around you. And the God of the universe loves you so much that he intercedes in a way that you couldn't. And he wants to lead you to repentance. So whatever it is, big or small, it doesn't matter. It's the nature of sin that will lead us down that path. But God, the person of Jesus Christ, steps in in a way that only he can. Sometimes just with that glance that said, do you remember? Remember. When's the last time you wept over your sin? I mean, truly, like Peter, ran out in the courtyard, and you know what's wrapped up in those words, wept bitterly? About six weeks of exploration. When's the last time you wept over the fact that you broke God's heart, somebody else's heart, whatever? When's the last time your sin brought you to a place of brokenness? Brokenness is where God leads us to repentance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments just to gather here. And thank you sometimes, Lord, that even in my own life, these things are petrifyingly difficult to hear. Lord, we want to operate in a structure where we think we have control over our life and sin and failures. That if I just kind of quit doing something, it'll go away. And I'll stop or whatever. Or I won't think that way or engage in this. And the reality is, Lord, that those small moments where we're relying on our own strength, like Peter, it's just not enough. God, we will always fail. God, I confess that I'm not strong enough to fight sin. My claiming to love you is weak at best. And it will never be enough. I need you. God, we need you. We need you to strengthen our hearts. God, convict us to spend time in prayer in the word. And then, God, if we find ourselves in the middle of that moment, God, remind us, whether it's through that glance or through your word, remind us of your promise to us. Expose our sins, our hearts, and allow that to lead to the necessity of saying, God, I want to live a changed life. Help me change behavior. Help me run outside and weep. 
and be broken by what I see. Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would capture our hearts and you would speak to us. And that the nature of sin would lead us to grace, which would lead us to lives of repentance. Nothing we can do on our own. You are the one that initiates. You are the one that calls and reminds. You are the one that forgives. So God, hear our cries and close our time in worship and speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, our Savior and our Deliverer. Amen.